Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast with me, Richard Harris, and my co-host and friend, Scott Lease. Uh, today is very, very fun and interesting. Um, but before I reveal that, a quick shout out to our three sponsors for the month of December, which are Lead411, Gong.io, and Vidyard. So please check those folks out. Uh, they're doing everything they can to help the sales community and help you close more business. Um, our guest today is someone we both have known for many years. Scott's known him longer than I have. So we're going to go personal and deep. Uh, his name is Tony Marshall of Content Square. And Tony, you, if I remember correctly, you are head of sales for Latin America and you at like, what is the specifics for you? Yeah. So um, uh, my role is I'm a strategic account director. So I ha handle, call it a five or six of our largest accounts, uh, right. enterprise accounts. And then also have been tasked to open the uh, Latin American market or call it South America market. Right. So, and for those, you know, I mean, many of you don't know this, Tony, how many years did you spend growing up in Brazil? Gosh, my, uh, half my childhood. I mean, I went down there when I was seven and then pretty much all the way through high school. So you got a, so you have a strong identity that, that with that part of the world as, as well as just sort of understanding the culture and the languages and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yep. And I want to dive into that because I think people would like to hear a little bit of that. But what's really important is it is that um, we're going to find out a lot of personal things about Scott today. So and he this was covered. Scott, Scott, and Tony, you guys met in college, right? That's yeah. Right. And on the tennis team? Yep. Yeah. So, so Tony, when you first saw Scott Lees with his long hippie hair, I don't know if he had a beard at that point. What was your first impression of Scott? Um, wow. So yeah, it was, it was definitely the long hair. Uh, it was the, the beard was there too. Uh, nickname was grandpa. Um, you know, it was, that was, that comes from those days at first, um, he was a uh, standoffish, like, you know, he wasn't the, he wasn't the happy go lucky guy that you, you're very approachable. Right. So that was kind of the first impression of Scott back in college for sure. Intimidating. So standoffish. <laughs> so, I've stayed consistent apparently, Richard. Yeah, exactly. So Scott, <laughs> you know, cause I know Scott's a competitive guy. I know, I know both of you are very competitive. What was your impression of Tony? Were you like, I'm going to take this guy on the tennis court? Were you, were you using your hippie look to make people underestimate you? No, I didn't, I didn't have that thought process with Tony at all. Tony actually had gone uh, to a different school, I think his freshman year, and we had played, played against them. And so when he came to our school, I was sort of like, oh, this is great. You know, like adding another... Uh, a talented player to our to our team and uh you know he i can't exactly remember the order of operations but like he moved in kind of right near me in the in the dorms and his roommate was uh you know a friend on the on the basketball team i think initially and anyways um you know we got we got along along well because we both were competitive and, and we were we were both really hard working and uh you know there was no like sizing anything up that came later richard yeah. after that, <laughs> that, was my, that was my next question in there in your heydays who who was the dominant player who could beat the other one well let's scott beat me uh there was one time scott beat me toward you know, i remember the match it was 
it was like six three three six six three, and I I've always had an issue with his serve. Uh, but in the pecking order of um, the the team, I was one above him, I believe, at one point um, for one year or two years. And then the senior year, I was two on the team. But um, they placed Scott and I a little lower than we probably should be because uh, we were pretty much a lock when it came to play uh, against the teams. Uh, we put a couple people up high that were give or take on a good day they could take there's, someone down but it was there's some strategy involved with of where course. you place people in, in college tennis but no it's, yeah I, I for whatever reason i i sort of gave tony a lot of problems but he he is the overall better player uh than i was he could do he could do more damage against some of the elite people um but we you know we were we were pretty close overall cool. he, is, he, is, he is better a little better yeah, and just, so and so I'm asking all these questions. I know the two of you, and we can turn it around in a little bit. But um, Scott can certainly ask on the other side of it. Uh, for people who don't know, also as well, is that Tony has done the ultra marathons, right, Tony? So, that is correct. So which? So are those the hundred mile one? Like, what are those? So an ultra marathon technically is anything longer than uh, twenty six point two miles, which is the distance of a marathon. Um, typically, uh, it's on trail and mountains, but, you know, ultras could be, uh, anything like running around a track for 12 or 24 hours and see how, and see how long you can go, how fast or how far you could go in 24 hours. Or it could be running from Squaw Valley, Lake Tahoe, all the way down to, uh, to Auburn. So through the mountains. So there's all kinds of variations, but really an ultra marathon comes down to anything over the distance of a marathon. Where did this there's countless metaphors here? There's <laughs> countless metaphors. There's countless metaphors here. Yeah. In terms of Tony's marathon and ultra running mindset and the length of inter- big long enterprise sales cycles like you've been in forever. Yeah. Did did the, I want to know, did the enterprise selling slide you towards this ultra running thing? Because you might not know this, Richard, but Tony was not like a marathoner. It, this is a uh, uh, after college kind of development. I, I, I have often wondered if you were in like a faster sales cycle, would, would you have gotten into long distance running like this? Well, in college, I, I did the, if you remember the cross country team did ask for me to, to join for a season. So I ran cross country, but that's five miles, right? The, the ultra marathoning was more of a, um, I kind of reached my, uh, after college, you know, I played tennis kind of competitively, uh, open circuit league tennis and got to the highest level as I could at the, the league level. And I felt like, okay. And then I got injured and I really felt like I couldn't get any better. I, I reached that, like the pinnacle of my tennis life. And I knew all right, I, I need to try, find something new to go after. And that's when I started getting into running more. And then I always wanted to run a marathon, kind of in honor of my dad that never did complete one. But I crossed the finish line. And when I got to the other, uh, when I finished, I was like, man, I, I feel like I can go another three miles. And then, so I kind of Googled that to see what was on the internet and found like some crazy hundred mile races. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to do that. Uh, so I found something that seemed more of a, it was a stretch, but it wasn't, it seemed attainable, which was a 50 mile distance. It was just the Bishop 50 mile, uh, high Sierra ultra in Bishop, California. So that's kind of like on the Eastern Sierras and that kind of, I did that race and then finished that and felt like, 
I think I can go another 10 miles. Then the hundred mile distance kind of got into my, uh, uh, my mind and like, okay, maybe I want to target that one day. But, um, to your point around enterprise selling, ultra running, I'm not sure if I've really thought about it that way. I think there definitely what's the is lo- what's a, the long, a, what's the longest deal cycle you've been a part of at this point in your career? Oh, Gosh, multiple years at times. It could be two years. Um, you know, one of the largest, uh, let's say, retailers in in the country took me about a year and a half to land from prospecting on my own to kind of getting things going to finally getting them to evaluate, uh, find budget, and approve all that. But a year and a half to two years. Now the most the deal. So it's a patience now, game. Yeah, and and. I struggle with patience, so that would be really, really hard, hard for me. What's interesting there, Richard? I don't know if you heard heard what Tony just said. He prospected that deal himself, and and I've I've been talking about this a lot lately in terms of the like SDR AE dynamic and should people be full cycle and whatnot. And I had a lot of people chime in and say, "Oh, if you're in a long enterprise sales cycle, you you don't have time to prospect yourself." Well, you just shot that theory, you know, to, to smithereens. So t- talk to talk to us about, yeah. uh, you know, talk to us about prospecting at that level. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly I don't rely on SDRs. It's a nice to have for me if they if I get assigned an SDR to help me, that's great. Um, but that's that's just the gravy on top. My focus is um, and is to basically go after these deals on my own. Uh, know what my target list is of accounts and start working my network and see how I could get in the door. Um, and just, I've just never relied on an SDR. I don't know if it's from the years of, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit, you know, when I, Richard was my boss, right? Back in the day, you know, I worked at PC Guardian and he had metrics for us, you know, we were dialing for dollars. There were, were transactional deals. Um, I mean, what would you say, Richard? Like three to five calls, maybe we get a deal. I mean, there were, oh, you're on mute, Richard. You're on mute. Of course he is. You're still on mute. Well, he hasn't quite figured it out. But you were in a more transactional environment well, with we were. We had we had larger sorry. We yeah. were we had larger channel deals in some cases. Um, you know, yeah. you know, we did we sold to every Kaiser hospital in the in the country which was a very large exactly. transaction deal. Um, we also worked through the channel and partners like CDW and those places, but, but those were able to be transactional as well because it, it, you know, they went through distribution and resellers and that kind of stuff. So it, it was a different approach. So we, the cool thing about PC Guardian was that a, we could sell direct, we could sell through a channel reseller, like a partner. And then we could also sell through distribution, distribution even had their own sales thing. So I think that for me, and I don't know if Tony feels this way, like it exposed us to the different ways you could sell, which I think helped us in career of like, oh yeah, I've done that. Oh yeah, I've done that. And oh yeah, I've done that. And we did it all in one place, which I, for me, I thought was super helpful. I don't know how you feel about it, Tony. No, absolutely. And, and it, you've trained me to dial for dollars. I mean, it was dialing for dollars. Like if I, I knew I was successful, if I was dialing a hundred to 120 times a day, like I thought those were the year that I think I probably finished top rep there in the company Cause there's some old school guys that were there before I came on board that were crushing it. Um, and I, I remember it was just consistently making those dials, not afraid to get on the phone, talking to people, working the, the relationships with CDW. So they think about us every time they sell a laptop, they were including a lock. 
um, I think that really kind of got ingrained in my process to, to be kind of that SDR, uh, to really go after my deals on my own. We didn't have an SDR that, in that kind of role, and I don't think it applied. But down the road, as I got into software sales, you know, pivoting from the hardware sales, um, which was my next job, you know, it was really, okay, I got an SDR, great. You know, but like, that's not going to make the difference. I know I need to make X amount of dials. I need to have my pipeline at this level uh, in order for me to hit my quota. And then anything the SDR brings in is going to be the gravy on top and kind of how I operated. You still are going to build. Tony, do you still operate that way? Yes, I do. So I'd say in my five years at my current company, you know, maybe 10% of my deals were generated from SDRs. Um, the rest was my doing and it's relationships too, right? So I, being at one company this long, obviously your customers will hop from one company to another. And so if someone's going to, you know, call it from the gap to Walmart or to Costco or to T-Mobile, like, you know, if you've built good relationships with your customers and you've, um, you know, provided them with value, they're going to think about you in their next position, wherever they go, and potentially introduce you to that company as well. So I've leveraged those kind of relationships um, in order to get new deals down the road as well. And then just obviously working their network too, who do they know, uh, spent a lot of time on LinkedIn with that. Um, and that's really opened the door for me in a lot of cases, you know. If, if you were going to build out a team right now, would, would you be trying to hire people who had more of a transactional background? I mean, it sounds like you really feel like, you know, the dialing for dollars served you well and, and, and kind of made you who you are and, and gives you a little bit of advantage now. So I, I wonder if you would skew towards that or if, if you wouldn't care as much. Um, I would definitely be, if someone is, you know, everyone says they, you know, they're willing to, pro it's a, a tough one to, to hire, but if someone that's always relied on an SDR, that's a red flag for me. Cause that, that shouldn't be who you're hiring. Um, if they're just going to sit there, wait for leads and then work those leads. That's not, I don't think that's the kind of person I'd want to bring, bring on. I want someone that, well, you, that wants to hustle, wants to roll up their sleeves. Um, if they have that transactional background, I think that's definitely a, would be a bonus for sure. Yeah, you used an interesting word there, or, or we're about to, and I've heard this word a million times, was when somebody says, well, I'd be willing to do that. That word willing is, is very different than I have done that and done it well for a significant period of time, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, you know, some of these bigger companies, they, they just have a different way of, of doing business. And if people are just used to that you know, working for large corporations and leads flowing in and then they get assigned a lead and they go make the call and do the demo. And, you know, I just, depending what kind of company you are, like if I've only worked for startups, if that's the mentality that you have coming into that startup, you're not going to be successful. Um, yeah. Now, now let's say, let's say that I'm, I'm coming from this more transactional world and I'm in the interview process trying to, you know, get a job at Content Square, an enterprise kind of sale. Yeah. How would you coach somebody to to spin your experience as an advantage, the past experience that you had coming from this transactional world, not a disadvantage, which a lot of people try to try to make it make it out to be, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the big disadvantage is you're transactional, you're, you're kind of don't understand, you probably don't have as much experience um, with building a relationship. 
and understanding kind of some of the pitfalls of those larger enterprise deals. But from a transactional standpoint, um, you're willing to pick up the phone and call whoever it needs to be and, and, and prospect within that organization. So if you're coming into an enterprise role and you have that kind of that uh, DNA of someone that picks up the phone and, and tries to find a, a, the way in the door, um, that could be really beneficial at the enterprise level, in my opinion, because you're enterprise, you're, if you're single threaded, you're not doing the right deal. You're not, you're not working the deal the right way. So yeah. having that transactional mentality, you're going in different angles and obviously you'll work with your, hopefully you have a good boss that kind of explains the lay of the land. But one thing you're not going to, you're going to lack is not being single threaded, right? You're going to be able to pick up the phone and who do I need to call in this department or this department and so forth. So that's where I think that transactional mentality comes into play, but there's still a big gap. Um, and that's finding someone that would want to work with you to, to kind of fill that enterprise role coming directly from transactional sales. Yeah. Well, th- let's talk about the death of me right now, which is procurement and dealing with legal and even more specifically collecting funds on, on clothes. This is why Scott has me around. This is the sole yeah. reason that I can make well, us do Richard's yeah. job. Richard's job is basically to talk me off a ledge because I can't, I don't comprehend why it takes people so long to actually cut a check and issue payment. So you, you, you go through the procurement process and you're, I mean, you're talking like how many rounds of red lines with the deals that, that you're doing at? what, what is your it depends, strategy? Yeah. What, is your stra- what is your strategy there to, to feel like you're making progress and pushing the deal forward without losing your mind because it takes so long? Yeah. So there's from collecting funds, I have no experience on that, but on, on the deal side of things, um, you know, there's what I shoot for and sometimes it works. And there's also that like, you have no access to procurement or legal and it's all run through whoever your champion is that you're, you know, in that deal cycle with, but in a best case scenario where I've had the, the most success, um, you know, with one large uh, retailer here on the West coast, I actually was able to get a introduction to the, the procurement person and develop a relationship with that person. So, and that's actually, I've kept that relationship over the year. Um, so from when I closed the deal to when it came time for renewal, I always kind of pinged that person, just checked in with them, was connected on LinkedIn, um, you know, started that process early with them. So having what, that what direct is that, connection. What, that, what, what does that ping sound like though? I mean, what do you, what do you say? I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I know, it could be just I, I checking know, in, sounds, hosting, sounds hey, we're right hosting a, yeah, I mean, it could be little things like, hey, we're hosting a little gathering uh, for for the digital team. We'd love to have you join. Um, I'm stopping by to meet with a customer. Just kind of want to understand: is there any any things that you're anything you're working on this year that we should be aware of before the renewal process? Just anything that 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 gives you just a little ping of a connection will help. Versus just okay, it's renewal time. Here's the paperwork, right? Yeah, I, it's a hard thing to do, but you you got to try to find some way to create a little bit of a connection with that level. And it, it's trust me, it's not as easy as with your your direct report that you meet with on a or yeah, your direct got, champion that you meet with on a on a weekly basis. Yeah, I got some advice on this literally two weeks ago for a deal I'm going through, and it worked really well. Um, came from a from a enterprise mentor I have who sells security at the high level. And he said, the thing to do with procurement is a little bit just like you do with your champion is to 
as you get introduced to them, say, hey, can you help me understand what's important for you as we go through this process, right? Are you, is procurement there to help navigate me through your entire process and introduce me to the right accounting people? Or is your role really just to have a, a conversation around pricing? And just say, look, it's fine either way. I just want to understand where you're coming from. So you get into their mindset early on when you get first introduced. And I think that's what Tony was saying. Hey, what else are you working on this year? And those kinds of things. But for me, that worked really well, right? Like saying, hey, you know, we're going to talk next week. You know, I want to understand what your role in this is so that I can help you do your procurement job, right? As opposed to that adversarial role that I think we see procurement as so much, and the procurement probably sees in us, right? They yeah. just see us as, you know, you know, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, people out to just get their money. And so to me, that was a that was a big lesson I learned about two weeks ago. So I, I think that's where Tony's headed. But yeah, and I to Scott's answer, those are the kinds of questions I've I've been using the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I've paid the price on just showing up for a renewal day and saying, Oh, here's the renewal. And they came back, oh, well, you need to complete this new form, this form, this form, this security review. And what should have been a Q3 renewal, nice and easy, because on the, on the business side, we had the, uh, all the, the budgeting all dialed in, but all this extra paperwork needed to be completed, and it actually pushed us out till the end of the year. So luckily, I got it in the year, but I had a deal that I'd committed for Q3 that fell into Q4. So I learned my lesson there. <laughs> and with that specific customer, I started the process a lot sooner, and actually, I ended up creating a... a um, because we started it sooner, we actually even then created a global MSA, which made it easier for me then to access other groups throughout the, the world. Um, so there was a benefit of uh, an added benefit from starting the process early, because that was something we brought to the table and said, hey, what if we established um, pricing for anyone within this umbrella to be able to take advantage of it? Yeah, I think that, that was. I yeah, think the thing we have to remind ourselves too is that procurement's under the same pressure at the end of the quarter that we are. They've got all these deals. They got everybody trying to negotiate something with them. They feel like they're being taken advantage of. And even just, you know, I don't know, Tony, if this, if you do this, but if you say in September, let's say it's a calendar quarter, hey, it's September, you know, I know you're going to get backed up in December. What can I do to support you so that it, so that working with us through the renewal is easy, right? Like just saying yeah. to the procurement person, like, hey, I know you're going to be under the gun and it gets crazy. So how can I help you? And you may get the nothing. There's nothing you can do. That's just the way it is. But at least now they know you care and that you're not just sort of viewing them as a, as just some means to an end. And I think that's the most important part of procurement that, that I've been working on this yeah, year. Yeah. Another, another one, I've worked with a lot of retailers. So another angle I used it, it was, we had a, a several, a few renewals that were end of year because we all make end of year deals. Right. So thinking of, a procurement legal department for a retailer during the holiday season, like that's just um, that's just not a time for them to be focused on just some random renewal. So I've leveraged that to create 18 month contracts uh, and push it out into the summer. So then that actually makes it a lot easier for me. We don't have to worry about the year end people being out of the office, then piled in with year end re renewals. So I've kind of leveraged that as an angle as well to try to get things, um, you know, larger deals, larger TCV. And they're open to that because it takes less, it takes stuff off their plate at the year end. So I want to come back to one thing we were talking about earlier in that interview process, right? From transactional and enterprise. Let's say I am a transactional rep, 
right? And I want to move into the enterprise and, you know, I'm getting through the process. You know, I've got a rapport, right? Uh, Scott loves me. You know, he wants to hire me, but he has that concern. What kind of questions should I be asking Scott to one, see if he's the kind of leader who's going to teach me those things you talked about, you know, like what should I be? Because I think a lot of transactional reps don't know how to interview for this and they don't know what a good boss would look like in an enterprise role, right? So are there things that you look for in your sales leadership when you're interviewing that help you know that they're good at enterprise management and coaching? Yeah, so so for me, it's not so much um, the the coaching. Where I see a lot of value in coaching is the uh, is the and I'll it's my current boss right now. He's he's a genius when it comes to to contract negotiations and putting um, you know getting creative with contracts. I guess is a better way of putting it. You know where I think I've hit a dead wall. Um, a dead end and um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how can I get this deal done? He'll come up with something creative that is a benefit to the customer um, and a benefit for us, obviously getting the deal done. So for me personally, when I'm looking at, uh, you know, what kind of boss they are, obviously it's someone that's going to be for it's going to be there for me and go to bat for me and clear barriers for me to get my deals done. Um, and it's not so much, I don't need someone to teach me how to do discovery calls anymore. Any of that kind of stuff. It's a, uh, it's really more the right now for me, it's, it's the, how can I get creative with this deal approach? So that's kind of the, uh, the big thing I look for um, when I'm interviewing for a job and this, I'm looking at my new boss. And obviously it's the big thing. I think Scott knows this and, and Richard, you might remember this at times. It's been a while, but I am a hundred percent honest with everything I do. Uh, I'm completely transparent. So I expect my boss to be the same. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm completely opposed to lies. I, I believe in karma. I think if that, if I sense that's the kind of salesperson they are, you know, I'll, I'll walk away instantly. Um, that's, it, that's just a big deal breaker for me. Um, but that's kind of, if I see that someone's operating with integrity and it's a tough, it's a tough one to, 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 to identify during an interview, interview process, but I would say that's something also I would, uh, I add to the list. Uh, so, yeah. You know, Tony, the, the other night on, um, on Thursday night sales, someone asked a question that, that was driving at, how do you get comfortable asking for more and more, more money? And I'm, I'm thinking about the, somebody's career progression, you know, your first sale, maybe you're asking for a few hundred bucks a month and, before you know it, you're asking for a few thousand dollars a month. How do you, how do you get comfortable? What is the the adjustment process like if there is one? I mean, you know, it might sound huge to ask for a million dollar deal for the year, but if you don't you don't recognize that a million dollars to you might be different than a million dollars to the the company that you're you're selling to. So, what what, what advice do you give to people who are, you know? moving up in their, in their career and they're starting to ask for bigger and bigger dollar amounts. And before you know it, you know, you're closing eight figure deals. Uh, how do you spit that price out without, you know, shaking in your boots first? I mean, well, what is, you just got to put it out there, right? <laughs> you got to, you got to, you got to crack, <laughs> you got to pop that first cherry. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that uh, it, it, it's, I remember that putting that seven figure, you know, 
uh, number in front of a customer. I mean, did you, I'm thinking did you, they're going to run. Gulp? Did you gulp? I mean, did oh, you, like, I big gulp. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to do it. And my boss is like, no, let's do it. But I mean, it, it really boils down to the value you're driving for them and how mission critical you are. Um, it's, I've never, so all my seven figure deals that I've done, except for one has been land and expand. Get me in the door and let me prove the value. And it's hard to do a SaaS deal. I, I, I've never worked for a, comp- a company that has that, you know, maybe it's a handful of a hundred million, uh, one million dollar deal, well, seven figure deals from day one, right? It's let me get in the door, let me land and expand, prove the value, then it becomes a lot easier to put that seven figure uh, number in front of them. You have the ammunition, right? Um, obviously, if you don't, then you can't do that. But if you, if you, if you're the land and expand deal to me, if you're patient and it's the, it's a long-term approach, like we've talked about. Um, you're going to see it makes it a lot easier. I'm going to I'm going to flip this around, Scott. Yeah. How would you ask for it? Well, the, the, the biggest point of reference that I that I have is uh, you know we did a 2.3 maybe million dollar deal at one of the last places I worked, and um, you know I just went for it and I kind of justified it in my head like this is a big deal for, for us, but this is chump change. This is like couch cushion money, you know, to them, given the size that they are, they're a multi-billion dollar kind of corporation. So I just had kind of kept repeating that, that story in my head. I don't know if it was true or completely delusional or what, but like that was the story I needed to tell myself to, to gear, to gear up for dropping that number out there. And so I think, so the interesting thing is that I think it is, going back and making sure you believe the value that you bring, being able to show the economic impact of like, if they do this, this should be what they're expecting. And one, do I know that? Yeah. And do they know it. And do I believe it? And I think that's a piece of it. And it, it's, it's a little bit going back to Tony's ultra marathon, like, oh, I could go another 10 miles, right? I can go another 10 miles. Oh, I could add one more zero, right? I can add one more zero. And sort of being willing to take that risk, um, you know. So I, I think that's those are the correlations I'm seeing between between all of this. So, um, of course, I know Scott would probably say, "Well, you know, if you don't prepay me, then I'm going to add a zero, right?" Scott, that's how Scott. <laughs> I don't know if I get. I don't know if I get quite that aggressive, but we we. By the way, we did have prepay terms. Richard. Yes, we did. So I, I've learned that piece too. So most favored pricing is the word to use with procurement. That is the phrase they like to use. So, um, so, so I want to, I want to shift this because I want to, we've gotten deep on this. I want to shift it over to Latin America a little bit. So for those who are trying to grow their, their revenue, right. And they're launching into a, another region of the world, but specifically Latin America, what are some things people need to know about going into Latin America that, you know, we can't, we don't understand traditionally as, as Americans or North Americans. Yeah. And I'll probably, my feedback is probably mainly going to be based off my experience with obviously Brazil. Uh, but I think it applies to the other countries in South America. Um, the big one is, it's going to be the cost of doing business there where a hundred K deal here. And I'll use Brazil as an example that the, the currency uh, right there it, right now is five to one. So for every dollar it's, to buy one dollar, you need five RIs, right? So a hundred K deal is five hundred thousand. But then you also have tax. Then you have 
all these other penalties on, on top of that. So 100K deal down there to them or for us is going to be a million dollar. It's like in the million dollar deal for them down there. It's like the, equi- the so equivalent it's of a million dollars. The equivalent. Yeah. yeah, the equivalent of a million dollar deal. Uh, it's a big investment right now for them, um, especially with all the things that happened with COVID and their economy down in Brazil, um, all the way dating back to the World Cup and the Petrobras oil scandal and all that good stuff. So it's doing business in Latin America. You have to adjust your pricing. Um, it's not so much... It's not so much about getting in there for the revenue. I feel like it's more initially it's getting the logos going. Um, there aren't going to be that many enterprise deals to be had there. It's I think it's just more market share. Um, but I mean, it's just I think that's one big note is, is just like, hey, don't expect the same size deals, right? That's going to be number one. Doing business in Latin America also, it's very difficult if you don't speak their language, uh, if you don't understand their culture. Um, you know, everything from when you show up to a meeting there, it's more than 90% of the time when I was down in Sao Paulo, they were 15 minutes late, right? Like that's, that's how they operate. Uh, they might seem very, um, really nice on the phone. They are, and it's genuine, but things just don't move as fast. So don't get caught with happy years (laughs) is a big one. Um, you know, they might like everything, but they just move at a different pace. Uh, Does that mean... Does that mean like if if we dive in like, hey Tony, you know Tony, you're 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 the, the customer in Brazil, and I say, hey Tony, you know this has been great, you know by next Thursday, you know I'm going to get you these pieces of information, and and you know you're going to get this back to me. Should I expect that I'm never going to get that back by next Thursday? You got to stay on top of them, but yeah, most likely it would take you a little longer. Define stay on top of them. Does that mean daily? Does that mean every other day? Like. You know, we, we get, I mean, if it's, yeah, <laughs> I would say like, if, if let's say you had a meeting uh, the week prior, right. And they said, they're going to have it to you. Like on Friday, they're going to have it to you by a Thursday. I would, I'd be on right. Monday or Tuesday already following up saying, Hey, are we still tracking for that? That you, what else do you need for you to be able to provide this information? Um, constantly, Hey, here's Thursday. Like you're, you have to stay on top of things. Cause it'll get that there's, you're not a priority, right? Like it just, especially when you're all the way over here in the United States, I feel like there's, it allows for them to be a little bit more uh, operate on their own terms and their own speed, right? Not as important. You're not in their face right there locally. So I rely on partners a lot in Brazil. So that's, I guess that's another key area is um, I've developed strong relationships with a few key partners in Brazil that a lot of them also have um, other business with the prospects I'm going after. So they're doing support work for call it Google analytics. Right. And I'm trying to bring in content square. So they're talking, we're talking to the same people. Um, So if I do land a deal, if I do uh, gain any interest, I can leverage that partner as well to, for feedback updates or to go after things too. Um, So that's, I would say that's another key thing to, if you're trying to break into the market, the best way to do it is through partners uh, initially. Uh, and then once you build a big enough footprint, then then you could start looking at just bringing things in-house. I mean, I've, I've seen Adobe do that. They operated uh, up until I think last year in Brazil through partners, and then they ripped that all away from them. And now they're, they're selling the software and only letting partners do the service side of things um, because they're big enough now to, and how many years? That. How many years was Adobe doing it through? 
I mean, it, I, I would guess it had to be five, 10, right? I mean, how long have they been around now? So it's, you know, so it's, uh, and it's so hurt it's them a, a little haul. bit. Yeah, it's hurt them a little bit uh, by doing that because partners that are providing only services that, that cut out a lot of revenue for them for reselling. So they're also starting to pivot to selling Google Analytics um, because they need to fill, fill that gap that they didn't have with Adobe. Um, but to Adobe, that doesn't matter too much because they're big enough now where they could do that. Um, you know, another thing too, is if you could somehow have some local um, entity to be able to do pricing in Brazil or contracts and all that stuff. So you can avoid some of the uh, call it import tax and things like that. Um, that helps as well, but that only starts to happen once you get to a certain size and you're driving it, um, you know, seven figures in revenue plus uh, in, in the region. At least that's what my CFO Every, said. I said, like, yeah, can we do that? And he's like, well, bring me more business and then we'll, every, then we'll, every we'll discuss small, that down the road. Every small startup right now that's considering expanding into uh, South America and Latin America is like, ooh, this sounds a little more yep. complicated than I, than I had hoped. So you, better, you, better, you better make sure you're really ready for it. It's going to be a big investment. Yeah. For it. yeah. And, and, and to be honest, I, out of even though I'm in, uh, kind of heading that, it is not my focus. My focus is going to be where the revenue is. And it's my, you know, handful of, you know, Fortune 100 companies that I'm managing. Uh, but whenever there's an opportunity that kind of arises through a partner or maybe through a connection that I have, um, then that'll, that'll take my attention to try to, you know, close that. And we have at Content Square a few of the larger, one of the largest retailers and one of the largest telcos um, that our customers currently and then fingers crossed i'll probably have the largest latin america bank on board maybe next year we'll see <laughs> we, uh, um, but it's, it's a process we tony's getting five that, job offers after this gets released <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that i want to i want to hit here as we we start to um we start to wrap up and want to thank vidyard and lead 411 and gong uh, as usual for for helping us out and sponsoring the show you and i have had this conversation for 15 years now about leadership and individual contributor and you know the typical if you will kind of career path is oh you're you're a rep then you move up and you get enterprise or whatever and you move into leadership you move into sales manager and you move into vp of sales that kind yeah. of thing you have very specifically and purposely not moved into sales leadership and I, i've used you as an example in conversations and storytelling many times before it's like like you don't want to be a leader don't be a leader move move up do well you know here's an example of somebody that i know who does this really well can you talk about the reasons why somebody might you know try to might go your route and why it's beneficial and why you feel like it's the right decision well, I mean, obviously, I'll, if you're if you're going the route to want to be a, a um, an actual manager, leader, VP of sales, CRO, um, the real benefit there, obviously, you're going to there's stock options, right? If your company does super successful, you're you're you can make you know a pretty penny. My route, there's less variables on me getting to my number. I have a number. I charge towards that and. I don't have to worry or be dependent on someone else doing their job in order for me to hit my number. Uh, a little bit of quality of life, but I mean, I, I, I don't know if maybe Richard could attest for this. My best year at PC Guardian, maybe, I don't know if I made more money than Richard when it came to 
you know, commissions and everything. But in previous jobs, I've made more money than my boss. But, you know, on one of those exits, he obviously made a lot more than me. But that income that's coming in, a lot of the times, if you're the top performer in the company, uh, you're making more sometimes more than your CEO. But that's not their end game, right? It's um, so there's that benefit. I, I I wouldn't say in the past I'd say I'd never get into management, but over time I, I'm starting to reconsider that. I'm not there's sure. A if I'm there's ready. a chick in the armor, Richard. In the armor. <laughs> you know, people have said, "Oh, you'd be a great manager." You know, we I we look up to you or whatever. And I, I don't have direct reports, but you know, I do have people that are on my team that help me support these large companies. So I kind of manage them in a way, but they don't report to me. Right. Um, I think that's so, pretty natural, right? Once you get, yeah. once you get experience in, in any level of sales, your managers will start to ask you to support other people. And um, for me, and, and I having worked with Tony, you have the patience and skill set to do that, right? Like you have way more patience than I do. Um, and certainly 10 times more than Scott does. Um, I have no patience for, for deal flow and deal making. I, I have a ton of patience with people. That's fair. I think Tony has both. So <laughs> uh, probably, probably learned, he probably learned the patience of the bigger deals, but um but yeah, I, I I could see that, but I can understand why you wouldn't either, Tony. Like, just you know, the hours can be feel endless, and you're dealing with I don't care if it's enterprise sales or or transactional sales. There's always somebody who's whining about something, right? So yeah, um, you know, that may be what you. Need. I, I have more flexibility. Yeah, there's more flexibility right now, and I think at some point maybe I'm okay with um, with that. But I I know my job right now. If I'm hitting my number and I'm doing what I need to do, I kind of I mean, it's not like I go out and go play golf, but or go you run, want, you know, whenever I want yeah. to, but I could kind of, it, that kind of plays in that way. You can kind of do what you want, but, you know, just get the job done. What's, so if you're managing it's, people, think, it's just, it's tough. I think it's, I think it's an important story to, to get out there because I think a lot of people feel lost after they've been in sales for a particular amount of time and they do well because they don't know where to go next or what, or, or what to do. And it's important to know that being a, a top producing individual contributor is a, fantastic career path in and of itself and for all the reasons that you uh that you mentioned right now yeah and i mean i being a vp of sales and and, and having a whole t- man that is that's that's a lot of work and uh it, it's not that many people that are successful at it um you know from job to job it's tough they could be super successful uh in a role like mine and then they start to get into management it's just that's a tough one. Uh, there's a lot more variables. That's the thing. I like to minimize those and have more control. I think. I want to I ask you a question. It may be a longer answer than we have time for. I close a seven million dollar. I mean, a, a, you know, let's call it seven million. A seven figure deal, right? Call it right. Like it's a seven figure deal. What should I expect my comp to be on that deal? Gosh, it, uh, that's a good question. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Like if it's a one-year deal, it's a two-year deal. Um, you know, if your company is incentivizing- is 10% completely like, Richard, what are you thinking? No, you're not going to get a hundred grand out of a million dollar deal. Yes. 10% for a net new business deal. Yes. You shouldn't is, be- Is fair? It's fair, right? Or is it, are you- It's are you fair. It's absurd down. I would say that I would, okay. I would be okay with that. Yes. Now, then there's, if your company is in high growth mode, and they're looking at like multi-year deals and things like that because that looks good to the board and 
on uh, your evaluation, then there's incentives for that because those are harder to get, especially at yeah, what, I mean, it could be a two-year deal. Could be could be upwards of 15 percent. Three-year deals could be sixteen percent. Uh, these are net new deals, right? So, right. I I've never worked for. Gosh, I want to say I've never been for net new deals. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever been below eight point five, and we weren't happy with that. I think ten is kind of where I've seen twelve. Um, you know, that was nice right off the bat, but ten is. I think that's fair. Cool. That's good. Like I, I would have no idea. And so I'm curious as to how that looks and I'm sure it can change too, as you, you know, series B to series okay. M might be different. Right. So, um, yeah. so we, you know, we always, you know, turn around and ask people at the end of the show and, and thank you for not going into, you know, my fantastic management style so that I didn't make Scott look bad. Um, but, but um, what can we do to help Tony? How can we be supportive to you? I mean, I, doing what you guys are doing. It, it's I I enjoy um, you know join some of these the, the tequila Tuesday. That was fun to do that the other day. Um, you guys have connected me to other people as it is. Uh, it's kind of cool to see other people that I work with that are that have been on your show that I've it's just it gets you thinking about things that you probably knew, but you forgot about. Right. Like, and so that's what I love about the content you guys put out there. It, it might seem as some of it might seem kind of like, Oh, I know that already, but like, Oh yeah, it's more for me. It's more like it's a good refresher a lot of the times. And then sometimes it, it leads to um, some great connections that I've, you know, just from the, the tequila Tuesday that I did with Scott um, I'm talking to someone up in Canada that participates on that and about a deal that I'm working up in Canada right now. So it's been super helpful. So I, I just, I love to see what you guys are doing and it's kind of just creating a great network and then people are excited to, to connect. So, um, but yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for spending some time with us, man. It's always good to see you. And uh, Richard, yes. you should ask him one last question, Richard. You, you should t- ask him. Yeah. You should. <laughs> oh, I know the I know the answer. So you you have to ask him this question. Just ask him who finished last in fantasy football this year. Uh, who did? Oh, we're going down that path. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Tony. That'd be me for the want, first time. But let's, <laughs> that's okay. Ask, guess, guess who finished last? Him, the, Richard, who, who finished last year? Yeah. Call my team the 49ers. Everyone's been on the uh, injured reserve. Yeah. So like for those who don't know, they're in a they're in a like twenty year fantasy football league where they actually all get permissions for their from their wives when they can travel to go somewhere to do their fantasy football draft for a weekend. So um permission? You're in deep. It's, it's a holiday. Exactly. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks awesome. so much. Cool. Thanks, guys. Right, thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.